welcome back to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's episode, it's really all about Emily. It has almost (laughs) nothing to do with me. (laughs) I mean, if if y'all want to take it back with us, take us back to season one of National Treasure Hunt, when we first introduced the concept of one of our compare and contrast episodes. We thought it would be fun to take a look at popular culture, pop culture, popular pop culture, whatever you want to say, that has a similar vibe to National Treasure and compare it to National Treasure. We did it in season one with Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. And man, if I learned anything that episode, it's that Emily's a traitor and she really likes Dan Brown pieces, <laughs> if you will. I love Dan Brown's books um, and I guess subsequent film and television show adaptation. <laughs> well, judge Emily as you will. Y'all know I am. <laughs> and that's really the basis of today's episode, judging Emily. No, I'm just kidding. The basis of t- <laughs> the basis. I mean, kind of. I mean, kind of. The basis of today's episode is yet another one of those classic compare and contrast episodes. This time around, we're comparing National Treasure to not the Da Vinci Code, but yet another work in Dan Brown's arsenal. Not a book, though technically inspired by a book. We're comparing National Treasure and, quote, Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol end quote. I put it in quotes because like how high and mighty do you have to think of yourself for your own name to be in the title of a show, whatever. This is Dan Brown's that's a lost successful author. This is Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol, the 2021 action adventure mystery thriller TV series for Peacock. And this, of course, is based on Dan Brown's 2009 novel of the same name. Emily, how excited are you for this? I'm so excited, Aubrey. You know that I texted you numerous times while I watched this series and told you just how excited I was and how much I love treasure hunts and mysteries and clues and it just it was such a fun thing to watch and I'm so excited to talk about it in the context of National Treasure. Yeah um I'm a really supportive friend so I like didn't say anything but you were texting me aggressively. I know. (laughs) Like my phone was blowing up. I was sitting at like at watching TV or doing work and it was just like bing 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 I was at the gym and like the show I was watching kept pausing because text messages kept rolling in and I'm like my god she really likes this show so <laughs> this is a good show if those text messages are any indication we're in for a treat here today but before I turn things over to Emily with this episode We have to start the way we start every National Treasure Hunt episode with our screams from Parkington Lane. Now, for any newcomers who are just here because they like Dan Brown and will probably never return again based on my entire premise for this show, our screams from Parkington Lane 
are our weekly acknowledgement of just how deep into the National Treasure Pit, i.e. Parkington Lane, Emily and I have fallen in our lives, National Treasure popping up and influencing pretty much any and every aspect of our daily lives. And this is where we come together to mourn the loss of our normal lives and acknowledge this place that we are currently in. So with that said, Emily, do you have a scream to share this week? I do. So as our listeners probably know, I very much like podcasts. Uh, I mean, we are doing a podcast. I also, as our listeners know, really like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I think I've mentioned it a few times on this podcast, but there's a podcast that I listen to called Buffering the Vampire Slayer. Mm-hmm. And I have, there are new episodes released every other week. So I'm, you know, consistently waiting for them. But in the meantime, it's not enough for me to just listen to like the newest episode. I typically will go back and re-listen to older episodes as well so there are many episodes that I've listened to multiple times at this point and it's like a comfort thing for me so today I was in the car driving from Haverford to Temple and uh, one of the episodes that I am very familiar with was playing and there's a character on Buffy in one of the seasons named Riley and he's a terrible character for various reasons but they were talking about him. And what I like to do, especially when I know the episode, is I like to kind of, in my mind, predict what they're going to say next. It's like a fun little game that I play with myself. And I do it a little unconsciously. And so I didn't realize I was doing it, but they've said Riley. And I immediately in my head was like, oh, Riley Pool. And then they were like, Finn, because Riley Finn is the character's name, not Riley Pool. And I immediately filled it in with Riley from National Treasure because why not? And you were probably, I'm guessing, very confused when what they said next was not Riley Poole. And then you had to remember what you were actually listening to. It was. was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm really glad. I, I also hope that any person named Riley that you meet in your daily life, on the street, at work, whatever, I hope you superimpose Riley Poole onto them. I'll do it to my dog. Perfect. It's a scream for another day. Aubrey, do you have a scream to share with the crowd? I do, as it turns out. Um, So as our listeners will know, because we definitely talked about this before in the context of Nicolas Cage's movie Pig, I basically feel a burden or a pressure to see any new movie featuring either Nicolas Cage Uh, Justin Bartha or Diane Kruger because that is where my life is now now that would be scream enough however at the time of this recording uh, there is a Diane Kruger action movie in theaters called the 355 and so when it came out I naturally felt obligated to go see it and I did I went to see it Um, not a big action movie fan in general like it's a spy movie less of even less of a spy movie person but I went to see it because again felt like I had to and uh Emily you might ask me if the movie was good yeah yeah I'm kind of wondering if I should go see it myself I have no idea what not a clue why 
why do I not know whether this entire movie that I watched was good? Well, it's because the whole time in my brain, I'm interpreting Diane Kruger's character as Abigail Chase. And I am comparing <laughs> every one of her scenes to scenes of Abigail Chase in National Treasure. I'm thinking about our podcast and recent episodes we've recorded. I'm thinking about our Hunt for Cliches episode and how we talked about the need for movies to place the location of Paris by showing the Eiffel Tower and saying, oh my gosh, it's the 355. There's the Eiffel Tower. We must be in Paris. And I'm thinking about how in Hunt for Cliches, we talked about chase scenes and how car chases and chase scenes are an integral part of movies. And Diane Kruger is part of a, a foot chase scene in Paris in the 355, which is a little different. It's not involving a car. But then I'm thinking, oh, there are some scenes here where Diane Kruger's character is basically Abigail Chase. For example, she's running down the street and she collides with a bike in the street and falls over and drops something. And I'm like, oh my gosh, is this Philadelphia? Did she collide with a biker and drop the Declaration of Independence, which then was strewn into the street and run over by a truck? The answer is no, of course, but what did she drop? I don't know. I don't even know the plot of the movie, really. The, the hardest part for me in all of this, Emily, was the part when Diane Kruger's character willingly blew up a room full of ancient artifacts in the name of Spy. And I was like, oh, this is definitely not Abigail Chase. And this broke me to my core. Yeah. And subsequently, the movie was like over. So, uh, yeah, that's my scream. Wow. So yeah thank you for that helpful review of the 355 i have no idea whether i should see that movie or not um but thank you i feel like you know what i feel like you just took a page out of my book when i give recaps of different shows and movies that we're talking about here on national treasure hunt i feel like that was about what you just did so i apologize for how insane it sounds so what you're telling me is you rant when you give something. Oh, yes. Excellent. Well, I can't think of a better lead in to uh, the episode we're about to, to dive into, which is going to start with a, a summary. But we do have to quickly remind everyone where they can find us on social media first. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We are available for your listening ears on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. SoundCloud, and Good Pods. Please go ahead, like, subscribe, rate, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms. Let us know that you're listening and go ahead and communicate with us. Tell us about your own screams and tell us about your thoughts on this episode because from Aubrey's introduction, I can already tell that she is very biased about this particular episode and is coming at it from a perspective where she doesn't want to like the lost symbol. So if you are unbiased, unlike Aubrey, and would like to weigh in, please do so. Okay, Rude. All I'm doing here is recognizing that you are overly excited about the lost symbol. And so we need to balance it out and make the entire episode unbiased. Thank you very much. So with that said, as always, this episode will follow a bit of an outline. Emily is going to kick us off with a summary of the plot to Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol so that you don't have to actually go watch the whole show if you don't want to in order to... You should. 
follow along. I don't know, Emily, some of your last texts to me, you didn't sound super impressed by the ending. Anyway, then Emily is going to lead us into a conversation about the purpose or the tone of these pieces of media, then the characters, and then the treasure hunt. And then we're going to end the episode with uh, a bit of a discussion about what the lost symbol being a you know, streamer era TV treasure hunt show, if you will, might tell us about the upcoming National Treasure TV series that will be on a different streamer, Disney+. Plus. So with that being said, Emily, the plot summary, it is in your hands. And keep in mind, I have no idea what you're talking about. So please help me out here. Let's go. Okay. So before I start, I want to let everyone know that the plot summary and the discussion that we are having in this episode, as Aubrey mentioned, are based on the Lost Symbol 2021 television series for Peacock. As Aubrey mentioned, there is a book that was published in 2009 that is the Lost Symbol. The TV series and the book are somewhat similar, but there are definitely liberties taken because we expand from a book format which is usually adapted into movies to a book format which we're adapting into a 10 episode long series that are like our 40 to hour 40 to 60 minute episodes so there are some differences there are also just plot differences they add a few more characters and like level up their importance stuff like that so just to be clear in case you have read the book if you haven't I would highly recommend it I mean I think the show is very good but um I like both of them to be honest anyway enough of that generally this is the story of a young Robert Langdon they actually rearranged the order of the books to make this tv show so so this is like Star Wars they tell the story out of order. Yeah, I don't think they... They originally intended to make this a movie with Tom Hanks, but then they decided that they were going to make a movie out of Dan Brown's book, Inferno, with Tom Hanks instead of this. So technically, this comes after The Da Vinci Code, but what they did for this series is they kind of flipped the script, so this is happening before The Da Vinci Code, and what this allowed them to do is to get a young actor to play Robert Langdon. So you're seeing a young Robert Langdon. Now, Langdon's mentor, whose name is Peter Solomon, and the father of his ex-girlfriend, whose name is Catherine, Kate, or Kat, depending on who you're asking, (laughs) is kidnapped and held ransom while Langdon is ordered by the bad guy, whose name is Malak who we later actually discover is Peter's son with a face transplant and a bunch of creepy tattoos. He's ordered to find, Langdon is ordered to find the treasure hidden by the Freemasons, which is said to lead to some undefined wisdom. This is referred to in the, uh, the book as the lost word. A lot happens and it's fairly complex. We get unkidnapped, we get re-kidnapped multiple times. There are different characters that get kidnapped. Basically, when everything is said and done, we end under the Washington Monument, as one does. 
where Malak, our bad guy, is trying to open some kind of portal using these resonance energy things into which he will fall, uh, at which point he believes that he will be reborn as a god. We basically find out through the scene that that portal thing, that godlike becoming, wasn't the treasure, as we probably could have assumed from just that it's unrealistic. But it was a Bible. The treasure was a Bible. Yes. Okay. So the Masons believed that the Bible itself was not to be taken literally, as most religions take it, but it was to be taken as a way for humans to become more godlike. So therefore, there's this ancient wisdom about becoming a god. And the Masons believed that when the time was right, there would be a reinterpretation of the Bible that would result in a new era of human enlightenment. And so fundamentally, that was the treasure all along. Okay. couple thoughts here. Number one, am I the only one who noticed? I'm going way back here. Peter Solomon, like Solomon is in Solomon's temple, LOL. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two. I'm glad you confirmed that there's kidnapping and, and re-kidnapping and unkidnapping going on a lot here because the episode we watched together, which we'll talk about later for the context of our audience, Peter was definitely not kidnapped at that point. Yes, I don't think he had been before. Got it. Um, number three. Are you trying to tell me that this TV series is trying to go supernatural on me? The TV series does take that turn. The the book does not. Well, you know how I feel about that. The answer is not positively. (laughs) And number four, like what you're telling me here is the equivalent to the treasure room. Like if this was national treasure, they would have opened the treasure room and there would have been a Bible there. Yep. Number five, this is the lamest treasure of all time. No offense. No offense if you're religious. Nothing against the fact that it's a religious base. It's just you can like go to any store and buy one of those. You can. Uh, I don't disagree. So that's my commentary on um, a show I've never watched. But yeah, that's that's all. Okay. Well, now that we're clearly all on the same page about this interesting choice of a show, Let's dive right in, Emily. I know the first thing that you wanted to talk about in terms of sort of guiding the conversation here was like the tone or the purpose of Dan Brown's lost symbol as it compares to National Treasure. Yeah. Um, so for this, I was thinking back to the episode that we did on Da Vinci Code, and I found a lot of kind of similarities when it came to the tone. So I didn't want to rehash this conversation completely. If you want to hear the conversation of taking a Dan Brown novel, movie, TV show and comparing the tone of it to National Treasure, you can definitely go back and listen to our episode of The Da Vinci Code and that'll give it to you in more detail. But for this, what I wanted to do was kind of touch on some just general things. And then I also wanted to talk about what the purpose of the movie national treasure versus the purpose of the series the lost symbol was because i feel like this is inherently related to the tone that 
the two media, the two forms of media have. Okay. And for people who want to listen to that Da Vinci Code episode, I believe that is episode four of season one. It is called Hunt for Da Vinci. Correct. So, you know, as we mentioned with the Da Vinci Code, the lost symbol is definitely darker than National Treasure. The lost symbol, both the book and the show, start out with a severed hand and someone kidnapped. So we start out with Peter kidnapped and we have his severed hand that Langdon finds in the rotunda of this uh, building in Washington, D.C. No, not a building that we visited the National Treasure, unfortunately. Grotesque. And the, the severed hand portion really seems to kind of set the stakes up for you, right? There's human life that is imminently in the balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you also definitely get a murderous vibe from the bad guy, Malak. He, you know, I mentioned he, he looks pretty creepy with his full body tattoos. They like definitely make him out to be like a creepy bad guy. And you just get the impression that he's going to do anything to get the treasure. He will kill people, whatever. And you actually see in the first episode, there are a few people who do end up getting shot, not by Malak himself, but by his, like, henchmen. Okay, well, that that tracks with National Treasure, especially National Treasure 2, right? Not the shooting part, but the fact that the henchmen are always more violent than the actual villain. Yes, for sure. Although the villain actually, you know, it, I don't, I don't think it was the episode we watched together. But it might have been where he killed his mother. Yeah, with his bare hands. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he he also is is fairly violent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get into that in the character analysis. Basically, the di- main difference that I saw here between this and National Treasure, and one of the reasons why I think I got creeped out. <laughs> and had to ask Aubrey to watch an episode with me was because with National Treasure, I never really worried about people getting super hurt. Hmm. Like, I don't know if this is because it's a Disney movie or just because the tone of the film was much lighter, but even in National Treasure 2, when they're in the cavern and it's filling up with water and they got to get everybody out and Ben may or may not make it out i was never actually concerned that ben wasn't going to make it out i kind of knew like he's the main character he's gonna make it out type thing and i wasn't super concerned that his parents were gonna die or anything bad was gonna happen to them necessarily i kind of just assumed that everybody would be okay Mm -hmm. but in this show it was i i had that vibe not at all I was like constantly worried for the fate of everyone. I obviously knew that Robert was going to be fine because he's the main character in a bunch of other things. But I was worried about all of the other characters. In fact, one of my favorite characters was actually shot in the first episode and I thought that he had died. Hmm. So I don't know, Aubrey, what are your thoughts about National Treasure and the tone, do you think it was just because the tone was lighter that we didn't worry about people getting hurt? Or do you think it was because we like subconsciously knew it was a Disney movie? I actually think it's a little bit different altogether. And the more you tell me about Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol, the more I think this is this is true. 
and this is maybe partially because National Treasure is a movie and the lost symbol, as you said, was made to be like a 10 episode arc of a TV show. To me, what this says is that the lost symbol has a lot more disposable characters. There are a lot of characters that are side characters. They might come in and out of one or two episodes. They might be there for five. They might be there for all 10, but they're, you know, there's a, there's probably way more characters um, in Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol that you could theoretically dispose of, right? And so um, you don't necessarily have attachments to all of them. And so neither will the showrunners and the writers um, to be able to get their point across that this villain is a bad guy. How do you prove he's a bad guy? He kills people, right? It's an easy way to prove that. Whereas with National Treasure, and I think this is something we've alluded to before, but we've never actually expanded upon it is character sparse. There are very few characters in National Treasure in terms of people that are named and a part of the story, right? Honestly, we could probably name them right here, right now. You have Ben, Abigail, Riley, you have the two parents, and you have Agent Sadesky. And then you have your two villains. That's it. That's really all that you're working with character-wise in National Treasures. And so you don't have disposable characters. Every character is a main character. So the same way that you said, oh, Robert Langdon isn't going to be killed because he's a main character. I would argue that at least Ben, Abigail, and Riley are all main characters. And then to some extent, everyone else is too. The only semi-disposable characters you have, I think, are the parents and Agent Sadusky, and I don't just say that because I dislike him. He's a, he's the side character. And the villains uh, being disposable characters. Ish. I mean, they're disposable in that they're not necessary for the franchise to, to continue. So, like, you can kill them off in that way. Um, but they're central to each movie's storyline. So if you kill them off, you kill them off at the very, very end, right? Right. So I think along with the fact that it's a Disney movie and lighter, I think that plays a really big role. Sorry if that was way longer than you were expecting. (laughs) No, that was great. I think, no, that's very true. And I think that that speaks a little bit to what the purpose of these things were as being different forms of media, as you mentioned, like one being a television show and one being a movie. I think because the lost symbol is longer, we definitely get more time with the characters and it thus seems a bit more character driven. But I think that fundamentally the purpose of the series was definitely to be a bit of a thriller in the way it was laid out and the pacing of the episodes. It's also set like National Treasure in the United States, at least National Mm -hmm. Treasure 1. And it's set in the capital, right, in D.C. I think so that you associate the risks very much both at a personal and a country level because we're kind of hitting at the core of what makes America, America, right, by hitting at DC itself and putting that in threat. Which I think you're totally right. There's like the national security angle or like, yeah, angle looming over everything, but it's so interesting that it's so religiously driven in the end. Mm -hmm. As as a lot of Dan Brown books end up. Right. I was going to say that's something I remember about the Da Vinci Code, but there's also this weird dichotomy of it being set in the government seat and having this religious motivation, which is distinctly not how America's government works. Right. Right. That's weird. Anyway, continue. 
No, that's a great point. And I think, you know, in contrast to the lost symbol, I think the purpose of National Treasure was obviously to be fun. Mm -hmm. And as we have discussed previously, and we know from talking to Charles and Oren, one of the purposes of National Treasure was to teach a little bit about history and get people interested in different sites of American history that they may not have visited before. Mm -hmm. Now, I obviously haven't talked to Dan Brown or anyone who worked on the series The Lost Symbol, but I definitely didn't get the vibe that they were about the historical aspects of things. Honestly, it was all about the symbols. And so the symbols were more prevalent than necessarily the history of various things. In the same way that we kind of talk about history being its own character and national treasure, would you kind of say that symbols take on the same vibe in this TV show? Oh, definitely. Definitely. The symbols are heavy-handed. I mean, Robert Langdon is a symbologist by trade. Um, So, of course, we're going to be focusing on the symbols. But from the first clue, there are symbols that are drawn on the hand and then symbols continue to be a huge part of everything going forward. You could also argue that the treasure at the end was a symbol, Mm -hmm. right? The Bible being a symbol of this ability to obtain this wisdom of how to become godlike in the Mason's mind. So everything really ties back to these symbols being a character in themselves. Interesting. Okay, cool. So that kind of wraps up that section about the tones and the purposes of the series. Now I wanted to get a bit into the characters, which I feel like is always a really fun part for us because we love talking about characters. And I became... You know, especially having 10 episodes with these characters, I became rather familiar with them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through and I'm going to talk about a few of the characters and then try and relate them back to a character in National Treasure. And Aubrey, you're going to let me know what you think about my analysis. Hmm. Okay. You don't have to ask me twice. (laughs) Okay. So for Robert Langdon, I don't know, I mentioned before, it's interesting because we talked about the Da Vinci Code previously. So we've already talked about Langdon as a character in the podcast, but here he's played by a younger actor. And as I mentioned, the series was set up to be a prequel to the other movies. So Langdon is fundamentally supposed to be the same character that will become Tom Hanks, basically. (laughs) But he's younger and therefore isn't quite the grizzled veteran of treasure hunts that we saw in the Da Vinci Code. This is all a little more new to him. With that being said, I still think that he's the Ben Gates of the series. And I say this because he had this one line, and this is where I'm going to kind of step back on what I said about the symbols being everything. But he, he has this one line. There's a scene where um Catherine wants to destroy this pyramid that that is this symbol that they're using to solve all these clues and it's but it's a piece of history and Robert says you know I study history I don't destroy it as a rationale for why he doesn't want to you know destroy the pyramid that's not to say that it in any way compares to the Ben Gates level of enthusiasm about history that we see in National Treasure. 
But I do think if I had to assign him to be a character, besides the fact that he's a white male protagonist, this would kind of lead me to believe that he's kind of the Ben Gates of the film. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. My my main reflection on this character comparison, it's actually more related to Hollywood and production. Um, and it's, I'm really reflecting on this idea. And, I, and I, I'm actually saying this in, in full sincerity. I'm not saying this to kind of like dig at the Langdon series or anything like that. I think it's really interesting that Robert Langdon in the movies, as you mentioned, reiterated, is played by Tom Hanks, a beloved and very famous actor. And in this TV series, he's played by a younger actor that is nowhere near the level of fame and success as Tom Hanks. Right. And it works, I assume, right? Based on what you're yes. saying, it works, it makes sense. Um, now, that being said, while I'm sure there were some people who were like bummed out that Robert Langdon was going to be played by a different actor, clearly this concept of Robert Langdon being played by different people, it worked. And not only did it work, but based on what you're saying as a fan of you know, Dan Brown, you liked it. And this was a successful iteration of this universe. Now, I find that interesting in comparison to National Treasure, because we talk all the time about how National Treasure is truly defined by the main role being played by Nicolas Cage. So something that I would equate to the whole Tom Hanks carrying the films idea, right? But there are so many people who believe, and I happen to be one of them, that national treasure is not national treasure and could never be national treasure without Nicolas Cage. It's one of the reasons we have reservations about the like the reboot into a TV series that's going to have an entirely different cast. Now, granted, they're not, to our knowledge, putting a young Ben Gates in there and mm-hmm. making it played by a different actor. But even so, there's this con- this conception that national treasure is Nicolas Cage. I actually just posted on our social media today on the day of recording uh, a Screen Rant article that basically is like the thesis is the National Treasure TV series will not succeed because Nicolas Cage is not in it. So I find that interesting, this dynamic between the character and the actor um, that clearly creates a, a false dichotomy between Langdon and Gates. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think it does. And I think that that's a good point on uh, this. You know, like you mentioned, this worked really well for me. And it makes me wonder if. If they casted a young Nicolas Cage for a national treasure type thing, if that would also be OK with me, just because of the fact that I was very much in the camp of Tom Hanks is Robert Langdon before I saw this and then upon seeing it was kind of like oh okay this is like I can I can deal with this and maybe that has something to do with the fact that these were books first whereas National Treasure were basing it only off of the movies and who we've envisioned to play this part based on who they put in the movies whereas with the books themselves you envision 
different people as Robert Langdon, right? Whenever I read the books, I don't necessarily envision Tom Hanks being Robert Langdon as I'm reading. Well, folks, you heard it here first. I want it on the record to state that if they ever cast a young Benjamin Gates for a National Treasure prequel, I will only not revolt if either, number one, it is played by Nicolas Cage himself and they do some crazy makeup on that, or two, they cast the child actor who played young Benjamin Gates in the opening scene of National Treasure. That is the, those are the only conditions that I will accept. Good to know, Aubrey. Good to know. (laughs) With that, we're going to move on to our next character, who I think is a little less contentious. Um, Here we have Catherine, Kate, Kat, like I said, depending on who you talk to. By the way, what? Like how? I mean, her name's Catherine. But she has has different nicknames depending on who's talking to her. Wow, that is, that's interesting. That's not a usual choice that you see made in media because it will confuse your audience. So I just think that's a very interesting choice. Go on. Well, one of the things is that there aren't a lot of females in this, so it wasn't super confusing because you kind of knew they were talking about one of two people. Um, so Catherine Kate Cat is Peter's daughter and is also the love interest of Robert Langdon in this series. As I mentioned, she's not the lone female. There is also a fairly central female CIA turned ex-CIA agent. Uh, So that's different than the first National Treasure and that we did have two females, but the representation was still, you know, on the floor. Or the bar was still on the floor. Um, She also, Catherine has a doctorate. So yay for that. We love women with doctorates, women in STEM, um, in these uh, different forms of media. And Catherine is running a lab researching noetic science. And I had no idea what that was. So I looked it up because the series didn't explain it super well. And it is, quote, a multidisciplinary field that brings objective scientific tools and techniques together with subjective inner knowing to study the full range of human experience. In other words, there are several ways we can know the world around us. Yes. Okay. Number one, is this actually considered a science? Because it kind of sounds like philosophy. It is so the, noetics is a branch of philosophy, but noetic science is a thing. Number two, and I say the, two is the, the end of the list, I'm pretty sure. So two of two. Um, I, this sounds like a science in the same way that like you could say ghost hunting is a science because you use scientific instruments and scientific measurements to try to see something that is fundamentally invisible yeah am i analogizing this right Mm -hmm. so that's definitely the vibe that i got um and it's also unfortunately the vibe that the television show takes So it's made pretty clear from the beginning that Langdon doesn't really believe in noetic science. And thus, Catherine's field of research is discredited a bit 
as Roberts, the main character through which we're viewing the story. Mm-hmm. In fact, you're even led to believe that this um, inability of Langdon's to, you know, fully believe in this kind of science might have been a barrier in their romantic relationship at some point. And, you know, one could argue that Langdon does come around to the field by the end of the series. At the end, he acknowledges that there might be more to the human experience than what he previously thought. He admits basically that he was hoping that there was more to the treasure than it just being a Bible. He kind of wanted there to be that wisdom, that kind of unknowable, unattainable thing. Yes. Obviously, he wanted there to be more than a Bible. Again, he could have gone down to the local bookstore and bought his treasure in that case. Okay. (laughs) the point is that even though he acknowledges this at the end and comes around to it people might think oh this is a win then for the situation because it's a win for Catherine in that we're now validating her field of study right but in this way the audience isn't really allowed to view Catherine's research as legit until Robert who's the male protagonist accepts that view Mm-hmm. So we're still dealing with some patriarchal concepts, even in this series with this particular character. All of that being said, Cat is definitely the Abigail of the story, though we definitely get more character development with her than we do with Abigail, uh, which is one of the things that I remember I complained about a lot in our character analysis of Abigail was how little we knew about her. We definitely know a lot about Catherine, and I think that that can be said to be because of the fact that, once again, we're in a series here rather than just in a movie itself. What are your thoughts on that, Aubrey? Yeah, so the thing that comes to mind immediately for what you've shared here is another key difference, I think, between it sounds like Robert and Catherine's relationship compared to Ben and Abigail's in that in National Treasure, Despite the fact that you have one female character in National Treasure compared to two female characters in The Lost Symbol, I I feel like in National Treasure, we've said so many times, Ben and Abigail are intellectual equals, Mm -hmm. where they see each other as being equivalent to each other. So like, I, Abigail, see myself as equivalent to Ben and vice versa, and their intellect is therefore used in an equivalent way to solve the treasure hunt. It sounds like in this case with the lost symbol, that relationship is actually quite different, where they might theoretically be equals in terms of an educational advancement standpoint, but they don't see each other as equals in terms of being equally able to contribute to the hunt underway because one person doesn't trust the expertise or believe in the expertise of the other. So Mm -hmm. not only is that a key difference, I also think it's an interesting reflection on the fact that the lost symbol was made in the year 2021, this show. So like that was a creative choice made in the year 2021 compared to in 2004, it's almost national treasure almost has the more progressive spin on that relationship. For sure. And I think that's something that's interesting. So the uh, the Lost Symbol TV series wasn't uh, super well uh, received by most of the public uh, like it was by me. 
<laughs> and one of the reasons that's cited for this is the idea that, you know, with every adaptation of these Dan Brown novels where Robert Langdon is your main character, you're fundamentally dealing with a white male who's mansplaining a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to make that come across in like a sympathetic kind of light. Got it. Yeah. So moving right along, we're just going to quickly touch upon a few other characters. So uh, Malak, also known as Zachary Solomon, uh, a.k.a. Peter's son who had a face transplant and a bunch of tattoos, is the bad guy. Honestly, he has decent motives. Like, I think actually very good motives. He is a character who has been in his father's shadow for most of his life. His father is a Freemason, and his mother, his father took him to see some of the Mason stuff when he was younger and explained to him that there is this greater knowledge that exists and stuff like that. Zach had a bad life. He ended up going to Turkey, getting caught for some drug trafficking, and ended up in prison. And he, his father, instead of rescuing him from prison, actually decided that he was going to follow the extradition process, which was going to take like up to a week. And in the course of that week, uh, we're led to believe, at least, that Zachary was killed in prison. So basically, he felt as though his father had abandoned him. And through this sort of rebirth that he goes through upon... You know, he does get beaten up severely, but upon this rebirth that he goes through uh, coming out from this, he realizes even more that he wants to find this fundamental truth and this thing that his father and all of the other Freemasons have been, you know, going on and on about for centuries, basically. And it, what he wants is kind of, it's not noble. But it, he wants, I realize I'm sounding a lot like I'm agreeing with the bad guy. Yeah, <laughs> you're I sounding really... like, didn't you say that his motive was he wanted to become a god? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was fundamentally he wanted to find this wisdom. To be a god. To be a god. Yeah, so the argument falls apart a little bit there. Okay. But I think that, like, they basically, they did a good job of building up his, his character to get to the point where you were, you were believing what his motives were, and they seemed like they were believable motives. Unlike someone like Mitch Wilkinson, right, who we meet and we're immediately like, oh, well, he doesn't, he wants his family to have this credit for this thing, so. Mm. I actually kind of think he sounds more like Mitch than like Ian. I mean, Ian's a straight greed motive, whereas Mitch has, there's like a familial rationale in place. It, in, in a sense, I don't like Mitch's motive. I think it's weak, but I don't know. It doesn't sound like this Malak character is trying to find the treasure to be greedy i.e. to like 
become the president or to take over the world or to you know no, just to become a god you know greed to become a god that's fair i guess i don't really know what becoming a god means or implies or results none of us in. do <laughs> <laughs> okay. and we don't find out because he dies before he can become a god so oh wow spoiler alert <laughs> Well, I mean, spoiler alert that he's Peter's son. Basically, if you're listening to this episode, you kind of are getting the gist of the I mean, symbol. he fell into his own Parkington lane. It just happened to be under the Washington Monument. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> so, honestly, the other characters are a bit of a mystery in terms of putting them in a specific box. People in the show had a tendency to kind of shift around as the show goes on and their personalities obviously developed over the course of the series, which I think made it a little harder to pinpoint exactly who was who. Uh, you could possibly argue that Peter Solomon, who uh, is the Patrick Gates of the film, this honestly is just because he's the patriarchal figure, right? He's this father figure to both Catherine Zachary and Robert Langdon and obviously Patrick is Ben's father mm-hmm, mm-hmm. aside from that they don't really have any similarities because Peter is an actual Freemason so he's directly involved in the treasure hunt and at, at one point is like recruited for his help in finding the treasure so he fully believes that there's something there well, well, um, Patrick believes too, or he did. He believed when he was younger in life and he spent his whole like younger years treasure hunting himself until he, until the treasure hunt ruined his marriage and then he gave it up until his son brought him back in later and then he believed again. So there might be more similarities there than, than we give it credit for. We've also had the debate before of whether or not Ben is a Freemason. And I know we have had we had arguments on both sides, but if you land on the side of Ben being a Freemason, you might be inclined to believe that Patrick is as well. You might even be inclined to believe that Patrick is and Ben isn't. So that's also a possibility. Yeah, good point, Aubrey. Good point. Um, the last character I want to touch upon is Nunez. Um, I thought he was a security guard, but he seems to be some sort of cop. So I, I guess I misconstrued that in the first couple episodes. I think he might be most like Riley. Hmm. He's definitely the funny one. And he's consistently around. He has this interaction with Robert and the CIA lady whose name I don't remember. Um, in the first episode where it's basically this smart guy who's Robert and this smart CIA agent who are trying to figure out this clue. And Nunez basically is like, hey, when the smart people are done talking, what if we just flipped this thing over? And then they flipped over the box that the severed hand was on and they found the next part of the clue. Um, honestly, the, the clue finding part doesn't necessarily make me think of Riley, I guess. But I think the part that makes me think of Riley the most is that it was very clear from this interaction between these three characters that Nunez was the one who like had no idea what was going on. And he was basically like, yo, you two are smart, but I'm just a normal guy here just trying to chime in. And (laughs) I feel like Riley a lot of times is kind of this, that normal guy who like isn't quite at the same level that Abigail and Ben are operating at. That's very true. 
One thing that I will say is that Nunez does keep his head a bit more than Riley does. Um, and this is honestly probably just because of the field that Nunez is in, being a security officer slash cop. Um, and so there's an example scene where they're in an underground tunnel where the walls are starting to move to crush them. And Nunez is the one who really kind of keeps his head in the situation. If anything, Langdon is the one who gets like really caught up in the treasure hunt and doesn't really keep like doesn't really think logically about the situation and Nunez is the one that's like hey this thing is happening here I'm gonna put this table in the way to help prevent the wall from closing right away but we gotta get out like let's like take the next step and let's do this thing but he wasn't like freaking out all of a sudden about like oh my gosh there are no stairs we're gonna die which is kind of what Riley has a tendency to do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's very true okay well so I feel like we've talked a lot about characters. As we start wrapping this up, can we actually talk a little bit about the treasure hunt and like where we're going in these stories? Yeah, let's do it. So the treasure hunt in The Lost Symbol, as I've alluded to, is a bit complex. I promise you that I was trying to pay attention. Plus, I have read the book. So theoretically, I should have all of the things in place that I need to understand <laughs> this treasure hunt. Mm-hmm. But it was still admittedly very complex. And that's because I think most clues had multiple meanings or uses. So mm-hmm. for example, the hand that they, the severed hand that they find is their first clue. In the beginning, it has symbols that are written on it. And the symbols lead Robert to connect it to this kind of ancient wisdom the hand is also pointing up at a ceiling and on the ceiling there's a piece of art known as the apotheosis of washington and this was to signal the connection to the final treasure once again with this wisdom component to it and then the plank that had the hand on it on the underside of the plank actually had the number 13 which was the next clue to get to Peter's secret chamber where they then find the pyramid, which becomes the second clue. So like all at once we had like three or four clues that were just in this one hand alone. And it was just a lot to process. Well, not only does that, is that a lot to process, it's a fundamental difference in the structure of the way this hunt is laid out compared to National Treasure, right? Because even in National Treasure 2, we say National Treasure 2 has a more complex hunt plot than the first National Treasure film, but that's only because the, the clues can kind of be found in different orders. It's not because you have like six clues in one spot at a time, right? And so I find this really interesting because, I don't know, the, the part of me that wants to hate this show is like, wow, this is like a really lazy way of putting together the treasure hunt because you are being given multiple clues at once instead of having to go to different locations to necessarily figure out each individual piece of the puzzle. Um, the part of me that's trying to be a little bit more objective is suggesting that or is thinking that the way National Treasure puts the clues together where it is go to this location to find the next clue, then then go to this clue location to find the next clue and then go to this location to find the next clue I think that might add to the lighthearted vibe to come full circle the lighthearted vibe that you were pitching earlier because it is very much more of a stereotypical idea of like a child's treasure hunt 
Mm. or a scavenger hunt, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's this idea of following a map that, you know, takes you to one place at a time until you get to X marks the spot. It's fundamentally different than what you have in the lost symbol. And the difference here is, is being, is building off a national treasure of almost a child's trope. And it lends itself to the, the fun. Wow. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. I will say that something that did remind me a little bit of national treasure was kind of the circularity of the clues themselves. So one of the, uh, after the hand, one of the first things they find is this pyramid Mm -hmm. that doesn't have a capstone. Okay. And the pyramid has this cipher on it that's segmented and it needs the capstone to complete it. And basically we end up doing a lot of different things and going to different places, kind of as you were saying, to find other bits of information that we need to fundamentally get us back to this pyramid. So at a certain point, we need a Bible page that has a substitution cipher. Then there's a ring that's involved, and they need actually Peter's help because his ring is somehow different than it should be as a 33rd degree mason. And then eventually they end up having to come back to the pyramid when they put everything together with the capstone. They figure out what the cipher was on the Bible page to figure out what the cipher is on the pyramid. And then lastly, in trying to destroy the pyramid, they actually end up boiling it. And at the bottom of it, they then find another code that leads them to another place, which fundamentally leads them to the Lincoln Memorial. And I think that just like that centrality among that clue in and of itself is really interesting because I think that that's somewhat similar to National Treasure. We can think about that in it being the Declaration of Independence, right? Like they needed to find the Declaration of Independence in order to kind of start this thing off. And then they needed to find the glasses, but they needed to find the glasses fundamentally so that they could read the Declaration of Independence. And then they had to figure out that the glasses actually had multiple lenses so they could read the other part on the Mm. back of the Declaration of Independence. Interesting. I never would have thought about that. That's that's a really good point. Because when you said circularity, I was thinking more of the Charlotte, because that's what we consider circularity. You start with the Charlotte pipe, the Meerschaum pipe, and then you don't see the Meerschaum pipe again until the last scene when it's needed to open the the chamber. So the circuit, I see what you're saying. So this is like a it's like a layered effect almost. The clues mm-hmm. are layered together. Yeah. That's really interesting. Now, something that I'm not sure if you looked into it all, but I'd be really curious to know. So if you don't know the answer to this, um, our listeners could totally tell us if they know the answer, or if they want to look it up. But you're mentioning a lot of um, monuments in D.C. You've mentioned the Washington Monument. You just mentioned the Lincoln Memorial. Do you happen to know like when these structures were created and whether that would fit temporally with when the clues would have been hidden in the lost symbol, because something that we're always so impressed by is the temporal accuracy of plot points pitched in National Treasure. And I was wondering if that holds true for this treasure hunt in the lost symbol as well. So I know it at least holds true for the last clue or for the where they found the Bible, because they 
the uh something that I think we talked about in our episode on the Freemasons and Knights of Templar that George Washington was essentially a Freemason and when he died that is when the Washington Monument was built in in his honor and so the idea that they were then able to take this um this clue or this treasure this bible right and put it in a corner of the Washington Monument makes sense temporally with when it was built that's fair only if we know do we know in the lost symbol that the bible was supposed to have been hidden sometime after george washington's lifetime i guess it's not explicitly said but i guess i assumed it was because it was put in the washington monument gotcha yeah because i feel like george washington died i think in like 1799 and the washington monument was built in the 1840s don't quote me on that it's definitely the 1800s (laughs) yeah so that's interesting. It's interesting because whereas National Treasure had so many pieces of the plot that it makes very clear when things had to have happened right. in the history of the story to like work out that we were able to like kind of fact check that kind of stuff. Whereas um, it sounds like maybe this was strategic, but for the lost symbol without those sort of temporal markers, it's harder to say, oh, Dan Brown messed up. It couldn't have happened that way because the, t- the timing doesn't line up. Well, if we don't know when certain things happened in history, we can't make those judgments. Right. No, that's a very fair point. So with that, Aubrey, I think as we bring it to our final section, you had something that you wanted to discuss. Yeah. And so this should be, I think, a fairly short discussion, but it's another place where I would love to hear the thoughts of our listeners on social media. Um Yeah, I guess just looping back to this idea that Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol is a 2020s era streamer-based television show that's fundamentally in the same genre of National Treasure. And we know that National Treasure is also getting a 2020s era streamer-based television show, theoretically coming out late this year. So I'm wondering what things like the structure or the pace or the casting, et cetera, of the lost symbol might potentially tell us or hint at about what we can expect from the upcoming National Treasure TV series. So I took some notes based on what you said today about the lost symbol. So I have some ideas, but since you actually watched the series, structure, pace, casting, et cetera, you know, did you have any thoughts here? What might be extrapolated as just like a general production point or themes that could hold true for the National Treasure series? Yeah, so something that I, well, one thing that I noticed is that as far as casting goes in The Lost Symbol, there was one well-known actor in the show and that wasn't the main character. (laughs) So everybody else was relatively unknown. or had had very minor roles so i think that with casting you can definitely get away with pulling in people who don't have the the longest resume right in history as far as the structure and the pacing goes something that i noticed about the episodes of the lost symbol was that 
at least in the beginning, it kind of lost its way a little during the end when everything kind of came to a head in the last couple episodes. But in the beginning, each episode was kind of about like one clue hmm. that they were finding. And that helped to keep a structure that made sense for you to be able to follow what was going on. It's, I mean, follow it insofar as each clue was like multiple clues at the same right, time. Right. So it was still difficult. But it, it there was an attempt there to kind of break things up in a way that I think you can do better in a series than you might be able to do in a film. That's really interesting. I could totally see those points applying to National Treasure. I mean, to be honest with you, more and more cast members are being revealed for the National Treasure TV series. And I do think that you're seeing a lot of lesser known faces. So that's already holding true. And I think it would be interesting to see if they structure the National Treasure TV series similarly based on either a different clue or a location or something very staccato like that. Mm. Um, I also was thinking about the fact, um, just in general, how we've talked about this idea of how a television show with its length gives you more freedom and flexibility to incorporate more characters so i think that is something that we'll see in the national treasure tv series already as evidenced by again the cast list coming out and i feel like we're already more than the five main characters we have in the national treasure like equivalent movie right. you know and um so I think we'll definitely see that. And then therefore we will get more character development. Like you said, for the lost symbol, there was a lot of character development across the 10 episodes. I think we'll get some of that as well. Um, something else that we could see, this is just totally prediction based. Who knows if it'll ring true. Um, you talked a lot about how Washington DC was an important setting for the lost symbol. And I wonder if that same vibe will or not vibe, but the location base will come across at all in National Treasure. It'll be interesting to see whether or not that's the case, because as you discussed, having the law symbol placed in Washington, D.C. adds the national security flair. Mm -hmm. And I would actually be almost surprised if Disney went that route, right? Because it's right. more of like a fun family adventure. So if there is that aspect, it would be pretty interesting to see. And then the last point that I'll make based on our conversation today, it's actually a difference um, between the lost symbol and I think what we can already expect from the National Treasure TV series. You made a comment earlier where the lost symbol had, quote, not a lot of females. And um, we actually already know that the National Treasure series is trying to make it very uh, woman or girl centric. Mm -hmm. um, our main character is a young woman her closest friend or friends, I forget at this point, it's either one or two young women. Um, I believe our, our cop figure is a woman, if I read the Deadline Hollywood article correctly. I think our villain might also be a woman if the rumors wow. are true. Yeah, that's more rumor at this point. But yeah, so that will be a key difference as well. So we obviously nice. have all of that to look forward to. Yeah, I think that's super exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, before we wrap this up, I know throughout this episode, Emily alluded multiple times to the fact that she and I watched a single episode of Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol together 
virtually via Zoom. Um, Emily, I'll let you explain in just a moment why you thought that was necessary. Um, I will point out that Emily wanted me to do this with her on episode eight out of 10. So I got to jump in right at the tail end, having no idea what was going on. Um, and we actually had a little forethought. Y'all should be proud of us. And we decided to record our viewing experience together. And so as expected, I think our commentary and our back and forth really does not disappoint. So that being said, um, Emily is going to go ahead and chop that up into some clips, some audio clips that you will be able to find on our social media in the coming weeks. So you can experience that joy along with us. It's genuinely going to be hilarious. So Emily, I don't know if you want to explain why we did this or if you just want to give the social media shout i'll uh, i'll leave it up to you we did this because i was really creeped out and i was scared to watch it by myself at night because it was dark <laughs> but in any case if you want to hear our fun commentary that resulted from my fear and anxiety you can go ahead and find us on twitter and instagram at nt hunt podcast we are also available for your listening ears on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Good Pods. Please go ahead, rate, subscribe, like, review, do whatever you can on those various platforms. Let us know you're listening. And like we said, give us your thoughts on this episode. Um, if you also have read or watched The Lost Symbol and have particularly strong feelings one way or the other, um, and I hope that you do tune in for those uh, clips of our live watch together because that was a genuine, that, that is a genuine treasure. Oh, beautiful, Em. And hey, don't forget to come back and join us on National Treasure Hunt in two weeks time for our next episode, which will be a historical deep dive on the USS Intrepid. I'm actually really excited about this because this is one of those scenes in National Treasure where we're there, we're at this location, the Intrepid for all of five minutes, yet I realize I know absolutely nothing about it. And if history is to repeat itself, we're going to learn a lot that's going to be really mind blowing because that always happens in these episodes. So Definitely look forward to that. And until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure. Hunt.